You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. It's dead. We were all praying for a miracle. Martians had no resistance to the bacteria in our atmosphere to which we have long since become immune. Once they had breathed our air, germs which no longer affect us began to kill them. The end came swiftly. All over the world their machines began to stop and fall. After all that men could do had failed, the Martians were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things which God in his wisdom had put upon this earth. That opening clip was from the 1953 adaptation of War of the Worlds, directed by George Powell. I've long found it interesting that author H.G. Wells included that line about God and his wisdom, because Wells himself didn't openly believe in any kind of personal God. He was probably a little closer to Einstein, who talked of the God of Spinoza, talking about the rules of the universe rather than a loving and caring personal creator. And George Powell didn't leave in the next paragraph from the novel, but let's have a listen to what Wells says after that. For so it had come about, as indeed I and many men might have foreseen had not terror or disaster blinded our minds. These germs of disease have taken toll of humanity since the beginning of things, taken toll of our pre-human ancestors since life began here. But by virtue of this natural selection of our kind, we've developed resisting power. To no germs do we succumb without a struggle, and to many, those that cause putrefaction and dead matter, for instance, our living frames are altogether immune. But there are no bacteria in Mars, and directly these invaders arrived, directly they drank and fed, our microscopic allies began to work their overthrow. Already, when I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed, dying and rotting even as they went to and fro. It was inevitable. The thing about bacteria is that they can be devourers. They can create havoc and horror within our bodies, within our communities, within our world. 
but they're also an inextricable part of who we are. And that's not a metaphor. You are, we are, I am a vast ecosystem full of many kinds of life that's not human, but without which all humans would perish. It's a balancing act over which we have very little control, which is surrounded by pseudoscience and alt-medicine lore, and which can turn quite horrifying when it gets out of control. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Hey there, Monster Talkers. In this episode, we're not going to be going the sensationalist route of discussing extremely unlikely situations like being attacked by flesh-eating bacteria. That is a real thing, but statistically so unlikely that I think it gets disproportionately high coverage entirely because it's unusual. Meanwhile... We're all walking around with bodies crawling with bacteria, and we usually only become aware of that fact when things get out of balance or an invader shows up that we're not prepared for. We're joined today by two microbiology lab experts for this discussion, Maddie Love and Kurt Jude. We don't spend a lot of time digging into the sort of contamination horror or worst-case outcomes of bacteria, but some of our audience may be easily disturbed by revelations of inescapable contamination. Also, if my memory serves, we do talk a good bit about poo. So, I've put in this warning and also placed an explicit tag on the episode just so that that portion of the audience can make an informed decision about whether they're prepared to listen to this one. I just don't want to ruin anybody's family drive or meal. With that warning aside, I think there's some really great information in this episode. I know I learned a lot of things from it and it inspired me to go and read more about the topic. And I hope you find it similarly interesting and entertaining. Monster Talk. You want to talk a little bit about what your backgrounds are to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, so I'm a medical lab scientist. I have 20 years in doing clinical lab work, with most of that being outside of microbiology, a lot of blood banking and chemistry and hematology, like, you know, what kind of cell is this? Can if I give this patient blood, are they going to die? And then I do have, I had about three or four years of microbiology background in my past, but now I work just in a microbiology lab where all we do is work up patient samples. If you poop it, if you spit it, if you pee it, if you bleed it, we will tell you what kind of bugs are growing in it. Ooh. (laughs) Not for the faint of heart. And Kurt, what what do you do? I do the same thing as Maddie, actually. My background has been mostly all microbiology, though. I have about 15 years experience and, uh, See, about eight of that was dedicated in a specialty microbiology lab where I just looked at fungus and uh, specialized with a lot of tuberculosis. And then the last seven years has been bacteriology where I just play with bugs. Yeah. And well, yeah. unfortunately, some parasites. And, and we can cut this out if it's not okay with Kurt, but he was at the Mayo for a lot of that time too. Yes. yes. Not just Mayo Clinic, the Mayo. Mother Mayo. What, what does that mean? 
I mean, how is that? I don't, I'm, uh, forgive my ignorance, but I'll be proxy for maybe some of the audience as well. What, what, <laughs> what is the difference between the Mayo versus the Mayo Clinic versus the Mayo on my sandwich, which I love all of these <laughs> things, but. Um, I don't think the Mayo on your sandwich has anything to do with the Mayo Clinic, um, but the Mayo. Let uh, us decide that uh, <laughs> on our own. It's begun. <laughs> Uh, hope you warned Kurt about his Sorry. Fun problem. <laughs> I didn't have to warn Kurt. He has to work with me. Oh, well, yeah. there you go. Okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> so sandwiched in here between all of us, continue your mayo explanation. <laughs> well, there's just some people think that there is a difference between working in Rochester for the Mayo Clinic and then there's the greater mayo. Yeah, I worked at Rochester Mayo, which is the mayo. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's just the Mayo Clinic. It's just around here. Even if you go to like a lot of like lab conferences, Mayo is held up to this high standard that everybody should achieve. And my understanding from talking to a lot of people is there's the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things, and the Mayo way to do things. Why? <laughs> wow. Could be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, is that does that count as Mayo chauvinism? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I think the blessing of Mayo is their resources. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, I should just mention up front that uh, how this this show came to be is that, uh, Maddie, I'd gotten in contact with you at the start of COVID-19 and said that I'd love you to come onto the show to talk about uh, the coronavirus. And you actually recommended Vincent Racaniello to come on the show. And so he did come on. But you said, oh, I can come on the show at some future time and talk about bacteriology. And uh, so I'm holding you to that. And I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's I was, great to I have was, you here. As a listener of Monster Talk, I was really happy that you all had Dr. Racaniello on because Vincent is just a wealth of information. Oh, absolutely. And I think we'd love to have him back on again, too, just at this point. It's so <laughs> wild. I mean, OK, first of all, that feels like a million years ago. Yes, so much has happened. I, and this year, okay, I don't know about you guys, but this year's flying by for me. Like every me too, yeah. Week or two weeks seems like a day, but last mm. year every day seemed like a month. It's very confusing. <laughs> <Yeah>. it <was> like, <laughs> so anyway, I, I it's like I, the things we talked about in that episode. I think you know he was giving the best information he had at the time, and it's like mm. you know we've learned so much more since then. So many things have happened. Oh yeah, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. My family's all been vaccinated now, and like now we all know about, or I guess to some extent, the mRNA and how that is changing the way we develop vaccination responses to these these really wild viruses. But viruses aren't bacteria; they're different. But I know they get conflated a lot. Can we talk about that? Like, what is a bacteria, and how is it different from a virus? Um, so one of the more basic ways of describing the difference between a virus and a bacteria is a virus needs a host. So it needs something to live in or a person to live in um, or an organism, mostly to complete its life cycle. I'm sure that there's probably some kind of exceptions to that rule. There always is. And scientists, we always say things like that. And then we are proven wrong. That's uh, <laughs> just so, the way it is. But that's the major difference. And viruses, they need us as hosts to replicate and to grow um, and to multiply. Bacteria just kind of hang out on us. Um, They use us for resources and nutrients, maybe temperature or some humidity. But they just use us as a nice little cozy spot to live. Yeah, and like viruses are either 
not, I guess, once again, not always, but viruses tend to be RNA or, or, or DNA that is an encapsulated protein whose sole function is to get inside of another cell, hijack its replication systems, and then replicate and make more, more copies of itself. Whereas bacteria, at least the bacteria that we study in, in lab and that infects humans, are prokaryotes, which basically like all of your body is made of eukaryotes, which are cells that have like a cell nucleus. And you've got all these organelles inside of them. Whereas a prokaryote was evolutionary speaking, prokaryotes came first and eukaryotes came second. So that's just another like bacteria are in and of itself. They can reproduce without like infecting somebody else, even though they may, you know, still infect you to get nutrients. And now we've got symbiosis with a lot of bacteria where we need them to survive and they need us to survive. But Viruses are always parasites. Sometimes they're parasites of bacteria. Sometimes they're parasites of us. Sometimes they're parasites of plants. But viruses are always like a parasitic life form. And can you give us a potted history of our understanding of bacteria? For example, how long we've known about bacteria? Well, I know like the beginning of modern bacteriology started, I think it was in the like 1800s or I want to say it's a 1640 something with Leeuwenhoek. I should really know his name because, like, he's like yeah, one of well, the Yeah, well, it's Dutch, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I know a lot of uh, modern day bacteriology didn't start until Robert Cook started describing a lot of bacteria and fungi and whatnot. Yeah, actually, you, there's like, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Cook's postulates, where he's got the four things that it takes to infect or to prove that. You know, something is actually causing an infection. And to be honest, I don't remember the top of my head, but it's like you need to be able to isolate it out of something, purify it, and then reinfect something that isn't suffering from the disease. And then that then needs to come down with the disease. And if you Google Koch's postulates, you'll come up with it. They're, they're very famous in microbiology. And I know that I knew them at one time because I'm sure I had to take a test on it. Well, yeah. <laughs> and as a character, he's he's such an interesting guy because he figures out how to isolate these things and just starts hammering through microbe after microbe after microbe. It's astonishing how much he accomplished once he got his procedures down. Yeah, he was, I don't want to say friends with Isaac Newton, but they were in the same, you know, what is that, the Royal Society of, Royal Academy of Sciences. Ah, yes. Yeah, so I mean, they were all, I mean, this was, you know, about that time when he's, you know, coming forth with, with his ideas and proving things. My understanding is, we understood that these microbes existed, but then it was still like almost two centuries before the sort of the germ theory of medicine really came to be. Mm-hmm. It's like there's there's a big gap between look at these tiny things and hey, these are making us sick. I, maybe it's not two centuries, yeah. but it's it's a chunk yeah. of time. Yeah, because I know that mycobacterium tuberculosis was first described a long time ago on. I, I don't know. I don't know the date, but I remember telling students it's written on clay tablets. <laughs> and that was when they first described a patient who was afflicted with tuberculosis. So mm-hmm. people have known about pathogens for a long time. They probably just have never been able to understand what they are. Which makes sense. Like you're talking about things that are invisible. Yeah. I mean, not invisible to us because we have, you know, microscopes yeah. <laughs> and staining <laughs> techniques. But to people 2000 years ago, these were invisible. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. now it's, it's basically magic that's getting you sick. Yeah. Yeah. The history behind syphilis and Neisseria, uh, gonorrhea, that was quite interesting to learn about where they didn't know that they were two different things. So they thought they were the same thing, but 
maybe uh, one only affects people in the eyes and one affects people in the genitalia. Um, and they did all these kinds of horrible experiments on people to try to like figure out what is what. And yep, that's the early ages of microbiology, um, just trying to figure out what is going on with the body. Mm-hmm. I think things like syphilis, people still get it, obviously. But mm-hmm. but yeah. the world's changed because of antibiotics. You don't see people typically walking around with syphilis dementia or with their nose gone or all the sort of horrible things that happen with the third phase. Not necessarily in this country. Not anyway. in this country, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, untreated, it can still do those things. But it's just, I, I think we've lost sight of like, so many diseases that just disfigured and and did horrible things to us, even though the diseases still exist, a lot of those sort of visual cues, they're not out there as much because of antibiotics. We can test for syphilis better now, but like you said, syphilis still responds pretty well to antibiotics, Um, but not all antibiotics (laughs) anymore. (laughs) And so if you can catch it early enough, then you're going to be okay. And, And nowadays, you know, we've got screening so we can go in beyond just the microbiology where we're growing things in the lab, you know, we can do chemistry tests and antigen tests to see if you've got antibodies to syphilis or treponema palladium. I can read words. I cannot always pronounce them. But, and syphilis, which is really cool, syphilis looks like a little teeny tiny spring. It's called a spirochete. And when you look at these under the microscope, they, they literally look like a little corkscrew, which is beautiful. But, you know, we can screen for these now using chemistry tests and, and, and antibody tests. And then we can catch this earlier. We can treat people earlier before it progresses to these later stages that, you know, in the past were just inevitable. Yeah. I will add that uh, to get citizenship in this country, you need to be tested for TB and for syphilis. So I was tested for those. And I think in other countries, too, they'll do that it's a, um, for any kind of citizenship application. Yeah. All healthcare workers still, are Still a concern today all healthcare workers are usually tested for tuberculosis too um okay. on employment just the screen to make sure that you're not going to infect patients yeah i used to have to get and i'm sure you did too kurt with that little uh, manto test where yep. you get the little tuberculin underneath your skin you get the little bubble if it's positive then you get an x-ray if it's a negative then you just go back to work yep so aren't there a lot of people still today who are carriers of tb but it doesn't necessarily manifest in in any other way so isn't it still very common around the world uh yes actually tuberculosis is quite common before covid it was uh the number one infectious disease in the world it had uh surpassed hiv just barely but um it is mostly just driven by not having enough resources to take a good handle on a program and um bring it under control the united states is pretty good about having um, a tb control program they had a lot of things called like direct observed therapy where they would watch people take their medications because a lot of the resistance that we're seeing um, these days is driven by people who aren't consistently taking their medications or they can't get their medications. Or in some cases, there's uh, even incidents where um, they're getting their medication, but then sometimes they are given medications that aren't actually real. They're counterfeit medications. It doesn't happen in the United States as much, but um, this is what helps drive a lot of resistance worldwide. Yeah, I think often people will start to feel better and so they'll stop taking their antibiotics. Oh, yeah, that's very common. I don't, well, don't need them anymore. Tuberculosis medication, and Kurt is an expert in, in tuberculosis and acid fast bacillus and mycobacterium. But 
those, that antibiotic regimen, it's not like here's your 10 days worth of antibiotics. It's more like here's your nine months worth of antibiotics. Yeah, and it's uh, usually three drugs. It's not just one drug and you're done. And usually they have some really nasty side effects. Kidney and liver um, oh. functionality uh, is affected and they're known to be like sensitizing. So you're really sensitive to any kind of touch or temperature. Yeah, it's like it's not a pleasant experience. I mean, it's definitely better than getting TB and spreading it to your friends and family. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the downsides yeah. to TB is if it's in your lungs, it aerosolizes so well, which means that it gets formed on, on droplets that, you know, you're breathing out. And then it stays in the air for up to four to six hours. And you can infect, you know, 20 to 30 people from the time that you're infected to the time you're diagnosed. And those are people around you now. And so it can spread really quickly. Yeah, and we still have actually small outbreaks every once in a while in the United States here, too. Luckily, they're usually confined because we have a lot of access to health care. But it's still a reality across the world that you can get tuberculosis. It doesn't matter where you are. So does it live in any other hosts besides humans? How, how does it get like all over the place? Is it all, all because it's residing in people? I would say most of it, yes, is people. But there are a few other hosts. One is cows. There is. Oh, of course there are. Yeah, that's the uh, that's one of the things that people. Why you have to have pasteurized milk is pasteurized milk. You don't want to get uh, bovine tuberculosis and die from drinking raw milk. Yeah. Yep. Um, Mycobacterium bovis, and that one's actually resistant intrinsically to one of the first line drugs. So really, you don't want to get it. It's it can be transmitted by cows though, and it also I think can get into elk. I think there's an elk population in southern Minnesota that actually got sick with it and they had to um i think they had to destroy the whole herd that would make sense i think i heard about that yeah yes, it but yeah um those are the two <laughs> other hosts that i am aware of um there might be others but no those are the main ones that i'm aware of well i'm gonna humans. go and look i'm don't know this so i'll have kurt correct me but i would guess mycobacterium avium can be transmitted in birds, or did we first find it in birds? Yes, so there's other mycobacteria besides tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is a complex. It's a whole bunch of different organisms. Um, so there's, I don't know Ooh. how many there are actually now, but there's mycobacterium bovis, mycobacterium tuberculosis, there's mycobacterium africanum, and there's a whole bunch of other ones that I cannot remember off the top of my head. But then there's other mycobacteria within that family that don't actually cause tuberculosis, but they cause tuberculosis-like diseases. Um, Mycobacterium avium is one. It's actually quite common in the elderly population. It's also common with people who have compromised immune function, such as HIV. They are known to be very susceptible to Mycobacterium avium, and it's known to actually be colonize your house pipes and be in the water supply. And it's just actually in the environment, and uh, it's not causing any problems to the the vast majority of us. But if you're sick or your immune system is compromised, it can be kind of nasty for you. And that one actually is worse, I've heard often, than tuberculosis because you can have that organism for many, many years and never be able to clear it. Um, And you'll be on antibiotics the whole time. One of the downsides with like mycobacteriums is that they will get inside your body, they will hijack and then wall themselves off inside parts of your body to where your white blood cells and your, your other immune systems can't reach it. So, like, they, they build themselves these little, like, panic rooms inside your body. <laughs> and then when your body's defenses start breaking down, when you become immunocompromised, they're like, we're free. Now we can attack you. Yikes. Terrifying. <laughs> There's actually a, a really cool article that came out. This isn't tuberculosis. This is salmonella. And salmonella, I can never remember the exact 
second like species, but I would call it Salmonella bon Jovi because it's very similar to that. It's like Bon Jovi <laughs> or something like that. Um, and you'd think that with a, a Salmonella like that really rocks, but they don't instead. But they'll get inside. They'll sacrifice part of their flagella, which is like their motor system. And the flagella is really antigenic. And what that means is that's part of the bacteria that your immune system can attack and really recognize really easily. It's a tail. And, Exactly. <laughs> and they'll sacrifice their tail like a gecko, and yeah. which provides insurance, which ironically, and gets them into your white blood cells where they can happily live inside your neutrophils, which are the blood cells that are meant to kill them. So the call is coming from inside the house is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm. That's messed up. And then so about 10 to 15 percent of the salmonella population can live inside your white blood cells. And then once when the population hits a place where it feels like it can reproduce again, it pops back out of white blood cells and it goes back to reinfecting you. Yikes. Incredible. So, so I don't know if either of – oh, where were you going to take it? I was, I was going to ask about leprosy. I was uh, going to ask about leprosy. So isn't it Hansen's disease? I was going to say, are you both fans of the 90s? Of the 90s soft mm, rock? Bop. Yeah, let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know if uh, either of you have yeah, much knowledge about that, but it, it seems to be one of those diseases which almost sounds biblical. Uh, it is very ancient, and yet there are still sanitariums. I'm not quite sure. Leper colony seems to be a very outdated term now, but places where there are still people who are affected in some countries and it still ravages some areas in the world. Yeah, um, Mycobacterium leprae actually is the causative agent of leprosy or Hansen's disease. Um, so that's one of the organisms that I cannot culture in the lab, but it is supposed to be in, in my wheelhouse. But I um, tell students about it. I have never really dealt with it. The, I know in the lab we identify it by PCR or um, pathology slides. Apparently it has a very characteristic way that it looks inside tissue slides. And uh, PCR polymerase chain reaction good job okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you did a great job there so pcr is cool because it takes we, we like we know we, we've got this little bit of dna that we call a primer and that primer attaches to the bits of dna we're looking for and then okay. if it's there it makes a copy of itself and then it goes through another reaction where it heats it up so everything becomes unglued and now those primers are ready to attach to another piece. And it keeps like repli- exponentially making replications of itself. And that's how we can detect really tiny pieces of DNA in really tiny samples. We can say, hey, that's positive for leprosy or positive that, for COVID or positive for whatever. And that's the, they call that DNA amplification. Is that right? Is that the yeah, you know, thing? it's really cool. Do you know what we call the bits that get amplified? We call them amplicons, which sounds... It sounds like something that we would be fighting in the next uh, Transformers movie. I know with it. So is there any treatment for leprosy? Yes, yes, there is. And leprosy is still around this to this day. A lot of it tends to be in lower resource countries, but there is treatment. But yes, it does usually do a lot of damage to those that it afflicts. It causes a lot of numbness and numb patches and apparently... Based off of the num- number of patches, depends on what kind of case you're classified as. But yes, there is treatment. Is that numbness because it's attacking the nervous system? Or okay. Yes. okay. But then a joint loss, like limb loss, finger loss. What, what what causes that? Is that a circulatory issue? Or I'm not exactly certain. Um, I was brushing up on some mic facts before I came here, sure. but um, I know that there a lot of it is uh, associated with not being able to feel injuries and yeah. infections. 
that are oh, associated wow. with those areas because of the um, nerve damage. And so because of that, your body just becomes kind of a liability to have um, without being able to feel injuries. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's a really common side effect from uh, diabetes and some other things. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have I have family members who've lost limbs because of that sort of numbness of the extremities is really mm-hmm. a lot scarier than it sounds, I think. And it sounds pretty scary. So, Oh, definitely. I'm counting the years until I lose my feet. Oh no. Yeah. I'm a diabetic. Yeah. Uh, well, me too. Yeah. And it's like, but I don't want to be defeated. <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> oh, that was so sweet of you. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Random interesting thing about um, leprosy is it can also be transmitted by armadillos. It's usually a yes, very yes. select um, species, I think, of armadillos, but you can get it from handling armadillos. You yourself, though, have to be susceptible to receiving the infection from the armadillo. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you can get it from armadillos. So just oh. PSA, don't pet wild animals. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, we, yeah. We, I went to, uh, like in 2013, I took my family to Disney World. Oh, glory days. And we, we stayed at one of their suites down there. And the at night, uh, the grounds were like, I don't want to say infested, but it was not unusual to see five or six armadillos when you walk out eating earthworms, right? Awesome. And which is crazy because up here in Georgia, you only see them as roadkill. So, but they were not afraid of people, right? So, and so basically, if you're at a Disney resort or if you're in Count Dracula's castle, you have to watch out for armadillos. So, <laughs> that little monster tie in there from the. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so, we've already talked a little bit. Uh, we, we mentioned antibiotic resistant bacteria. And uh, so, for some time, science has been concerned about that. And I remember when I was a kid, you'd go to the doctor for anything and they'd be handing you antibiotics like candy. And uh, nowadays, they've stopped doing that. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that threat of antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Well, one of the best things that has come out of all of this is we now have antibiotic stewardship programs, which hopefully pre- prevent that kind of thing from happening. I do have a part-time job where I do direct patient contact, and I tell you, it still happens. Um, okay. But so what happens is your bacteria have two sets of DNA. They've got the regular DNA that's the double helix that you think of as DNA that you and I have. They also have what's called a plasmid. And a plasmid is a bit of circular DNA. And one of the easiest ways for antibiotic resistance to happen is if the gene that codes for the resistance of the antibiotic is on that circular bit of DNA, that circular bit of DNA, the plasmid, that can actually leave the bacterial cell and go to the next bacterial cell, which can then, it doesn't bring it into its double helix DNA, but now that little piece of DNA is its DNA. And so it can now start producing the same antibiotic mechanism or resistance mechanism that the other DNA bacteria did. We call that horizontal gene transfer. I mean, there's other ways where it's, you know, your traditional evolution where you take your antibiotic and it kills, you know, 99%, but it doesn't kill that 1%. That 1% lives a little bit better. And then, you know, slowly uh, an organism can build up antibiotic resistance that way. I use slowly in quotes because Staph aureus uh, just started developing penicillin resistance like within six months or a year of penicillin being introduced. So quick, slowly, uh, we're, when we're talking about evolution of bacteria, you know, there are bacteria that will double their, in their colony size in 20 minutes. So that's a lot of like generations of, of it bacteria. Is. It is. I, I was just doing the, uh, the, you know, the old story about the chess board and the 
guy who does a favor for the king and wants to be paid by having a piece of rice put on the first piece, you know, square, and then the next day two, you know, pieces of rice, and the next day three pieces, you know, dump four. Went two, four, eight, six. Anyway, it's supposed to teach you about exponents if it's told properly. I, I, I managed better when I was talking to my daughter than to you guys. But <laughs> <laughs> did you execute it quickly? I, I well, what I did was I said, look, you know, by the time you get to the end, you know, you've got more rice than there ever has been, right? Like it's right. it's 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 a big number. And, and then bacteria would do that, except they run out of host. Right, like they run out of food mm-hmm. first. But that's that would like when we're growing bacteria on an auger plate which auger is basically jello made out of blood and other things. Mm. Um, when we're growing it on there, and there's always room for jello, but there's not always room for the bacteria on the plate. But, you know, that's the only thing that really keeps them in check is they just use up all their resources so they can't keep going. And, or the waste products from the bacteria growing will inhibit their growth. But otherwise, they would just keep going and going and going. Yeah, that's the, uh, the, the famous sigmoid graph of population explosion, right? So. Like when when you like the growth of the population versus the resources available, and then you have a crash, right? Right, and then you know deer and probably every other life form. Yeah, well, right, yeah, every life form. If you don't have enough resources, then mm-hmm. they stop you. What's that? Uh, living, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a breatharian. Yeah. All I need is oxygen oh. and sunshine. <laughs> God, oh. is anyone still doing that? <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. We were talking about bacteria, I think. Yes. So we've been talking a lot about bad bacteria. So what about good bacteria? What's the difference between good bacteria and bad bacteria? Nothing. Yeah, there's not much of a difference. Good bacteria can become bad bacteria. Just give them the opportunity. Uh, If they they give into their anger and... Yes, there's a bacteria called Hulk. Get with the wrong crowd. (laughs) (laughs) If you're exposed to gamma rate, no. Um, There are bacteria that we n- will never have a mutually uh, symbiotic type relationship with, you know, like my- mycobacterium tuberculosis, like we we're just talking about. That that will never be considered a good bacteria unless something dramatically changes in the future. But there are other e- col- a bacteria like E. coli that live in your gut, and you need E. coli to and bacteria like E. coli to process and break down the foods that you eat, so mm-hmm. you can get not just the energy from them, but there are bacteria in your gut that produce what's called vitamin K. Vitamin K is a clotting factor. We actually give newborn babies, unless their parents object because they're anti-vaxxers, we actually give newborn babies shots of vitamin K because they don't yet have a robust intestinal flora to make those extra clotting factors that they need. So that's why we have evolved with the bacteria in our guts. Because otherwise you think, why can't your body make these clotting factors that it needs? You obviously need them, but you need the bacteria in your gut to create them. And there's a lot of other chemicals that I, I, sorry, I don't have at my fingertips, but do the same thing where you need the bacteria and the metabolic byproducts of the bacteria to actually extract the nutrients, the vitamins, and the other necessary elements of life. I, ironically, or, or no, that's the wrong word. Coincidentally, I was reading up on cicadas today. We're, we're not having any of the cicada outbreak down here where I'm at, which is slightly disappointing because I would really love to see the, like the numbers people are talking about, but and we're in Minnesota. What's a cicada? Yeah. So like we go outside if, and scream all summer, regardless if you're in Washington, DC, well, I hear them, but not like the, it's just this swarm of these, I guess these are like in a 13 year cycle or something, but the, this right now, anyway, the point is that the tie in is this, the cicada in their immature form lives underground and drinks sap out of trees and 
much like termites, that stuff's not really particularly digestible, but they have gut bacteria, which can turn the sap into sugars. And so then they can use that for energy. And the same thing with termites. They also rely entirely on a bacteria in order to be able to digest the wood pulp. So it's it's beautiful symbiosis, you know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Kurt and I were just sharing an article like yesterday, the day before on there's a kind of pitcher plant that, that has a bacteria inside it. It's a North American pitcher plant. Was it the cobra lily? Yeah. And the bacteria inside do help break down and create nutrients. But one of the other things that bacteria does is its very presence lowers the surface tension of the liquid inside the pitcher plant, which keeps the insects from being able to like sit on top yeah, of water. Yeah. You don't and so water. it yeah. like does double duty. So it's just another example of how, you know, eukaryotic life like plants and mm-hmm. us and prokaryotic life like bacteria you know we all we evolve together so that's an example of a good bacteria for them okay. not for the fly yeah, like, <laughs> yeah it's not actually just a bacteria it's also it's a fungus ants and fungus have a very complex relationship and they're always using bacterial or microbes that they find in the soil uh, I know another one is streptomyces. Um, they use that to like farm fungus uh, within their colonies. They've u- utilized and figured out how to do it so they can um, help maintain a food supply for themselves. Yeah, and actually fungi are what give us a lot of our antibiotics. Like yes. we've, it's, it's this, you know, billions of year <laughs> war between fungus and bacteria th- trying to survive and ba- bacteria trying to help compete each other. And then we harness that chemical that this one bacteria has produced or this fungus has produced to fight each other. And we can use that in our you know, war against infections that we have. And one of the other things that we're get, get being able to use now, and it's still early, early stages, is it's called phage. And what phage is, is you're basically taking viruses that work against bacteria and using those viruses to attack the bacteria that, that's infecting you because bacteria suffer from viruses as well. And thankfully, the viruses that infect, say, an E. coli would have, have no effect on you because they're designed, <laughs> evolved, <laughs> <laughs> evolved to, you know, kill the, kill the E. coli. So they, in the, which 
is a prokaryote, whereas our cells are eukaryotes. So once again, I, it's just this interconnectedness is one of the things that mm-hmm. I absolutely love about biology, chemistry, uh, physics, like, cause it's all related. Tangentially, or I guess it's somewhat more than that. It, it touches on one of the questions I had, which is around behavior modification. Cause I was thinking about how some fungus, uh, or some fungi can affect the behavior of, of its hosts, uh, specifically the ant comes to mind, but I don't think it's just mm-hmm. ants. But I was wondering if there's anything like that with bacteria, because I've always been suspicious your gut flora can change dramatically depending on what you eat. And I've always wondered if like some gut flora like has an impetus, like it helps make you want to eat certain kinds of food more. I don't know if that's real. I just am suspicious about it. I've always just wondered if like if I switch to like an entirely vegetarian diet, like how long would it be before my gut flora would change in such a way that maybe I wouldn't have the same cravings or would that, would it even matter? I don't know. I didn't have cravings. I'm vegetarian. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people say that, like I've heard people say that they've switched to vegetarian and then they just started being repulsed by the idea of eating meat. And it's like, why? I don't know why. You know, ironically last night I was, uh, I attended Minnesota skeptics meetup and the gal that I was sitting across did her master's thesis on, uh, the microbiome and food and how she, you know, you know, the, the differences of, of how they interrelate. And one of the downsides to the microbiome for understanding how the gut microbiome affects your, your, your thinking and, and, and whatnot is there's still a lot of like unreplicated scientific studies and it's tied up with a lot of woo. So you have a lot of pseudoscientists peddling, do this to improve your microbiome when they don't either have unreplicated studies to back them up or they've got completely <laughs> completely bogus studies yeah just to back make them stuff up. up i mean you could just make exactly stuff up. yeah yeah you know so it's it's an area that needs a lot more study it's an area that needs a lot more research but the idea that we are somehow so much better than every other life on plant on this planet to think that we didn't if co-evolve with the bacteria in our gut and we, we can look at all of these other microbiomes and all these other animals and see how the bacteria influences the animal to do the thing and the animal helps per influence the bacteria to do the thing to think that the bacteria living in us don't have some sort of effect on our behavior that helps the bacteria. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a hubris. Uh, we, we're special. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we, we like to believe we're not animals. We're something else, you know? And I mean, mm-hmm. obviously if it's you do, superior. It, if you do science reading, you really quickly find that everything that's supposed to make us special is already in other animals. You know, we may have more of this or more of that, but like, we're not that special. We're not that unique, you know, and we're related to all these other life forms through DNA. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, yeah, that is, there's definitely something along those lines going on. Yeah. So there's no scientific consensus on how your, you know, gut flora, your human microbiome affects your behavior, but it seems pretty likely that there is some effect somewhere, no matter how small or how big that it is at least there. It, it's, it's a crazy thing because you can't, you can't do an experiment by yourself. I mean, you could try to do a life hack and say, well, I'm going to only eat these things and see what, how it affects me. But then if you're successful, you don't know whether that was your willpower or whether that was, you know, there was actually something to the thing you did or, you know, I mean, like, so 
the cause and effects really hard to narrow down. And I don't know. I don't know. I just, I'm very curious about it. Probably needs to have a lot of studies. They need to be very broad. And I, you know, it, it's just something I'm very interested in though. And it, we, we don't even really understand our brains that well. We don't understand what consciousness is. There's so many things going on there, but I am mostly concerned with what can I do to trick myself into not being hungry for candy? That's really important to me. So. <laughs> I totally get that. No, there, you had, you had Dr. Vincent Racanel on. He does his podcast This Week in Microbiology as well as This Week in Virology. And as an avid fan of This Week in Microbiology, TWIM, they, you know, they go over papers on their show and they've had a few papers over the years talking about things like probiotics and talking about, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's and the relationship between your, the microbiome and, and the brain. And, you know, once again, these are studies that there is no scientific consensus on it at this point. We are probably decades away from understanding this enough mm-hmm. to where we can say, you know, your microbiome should look like this to have this kind of behavior or this kind of whatever, you know, depression is caused by this suite of of bacteria that's in you. Because one of the things that's really hard with your human flora, and this ties into like bacteria that live out in the wild, is there's so much bacteria that we can't grow in the lab because we don't know what that bacteria needs to live. We don't know if it needs another organism to live, if it needs a nutrient factor to live, what the right growing temperatures are for it. So we know through doing DNA testing, PCR of like human micro microflora, we can look and go, okay, we've got this big like black hole where we can say, we know there's all of these genes that we can't account for. We don't know what kind of bacteria, what kind of viruses. We don't know what's causing these genes, but we know that they're in people, but we mm-hmm. can't grow them in the lab to know even what they are. So talking about the gut flora and gut biome, uh, and you've mentioned probiotics as well. It, it, probiotics seem to be such a fad right now. But uh, so I've been put onto probiotics by my gastrointestinal specialist. But at the same time, you can go to a health food store and there are dozens of products of probiotics. And uh, I don't think most people, the average person going into a store like that would really know what they were looking for or should be looking for. So could you possibly talk a little bit about probiotics and uh, maybe are there any benefits of taking them or are there possible negative effects of taking too many ones or the, the wrong kind? Don't take medical advice from a podcast. It would be my first date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the big difference between probiotics uh, and amateur biotics is probiotics are paid, right? Is that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Pay for the probiotic, it's now a probiotic. They're much Experts, more yeah. Um, as far as I know, the prevailing theory is uh, what goes in must come out. And unless you're changing your diet, your microbiome really won't change much. Ooh. Um, and there's not much you can really do to affect it unless you're doing a dietary change along with it. But it's all based off of the food that you're eating. So, I mean, if you're per- supplying the microbiome that's within you with the normal diet that it usually likes, it's going to thrive. And if you start changing up your diet and you start going a little bit more agrarian diet, then yeah, then you're going to probably have a few rough days, but then things will get better. Um, And then your bacteria population will probably shift a little bit. Yeah. The bacteria that are going to grow inside you are the kinds of bacteria that eat, that like the food that you're giving them. So the bacteria that love high sugar, high fat, those bacteria are going to thrive better if you're eating a high sugar, high fat diet. If you're the bacteria that like roughage are going to grow better when you give it more roughage and outcompete the other bacteria. One of the things with probiotics to think about is 
is I think of it as like a forest. Like your microbiome should be like the Amazon jungle, very diversified, different layers, lots of things interconnected. If you cut down the, the forest and you plant just beech trees, that's not a forest anymore. That's not a healthy forest. And at best, probiotics would do that. It gives you like one, you know, what is it? Lactobacillus uh, bifidus is one of the really most common ones, which isn't my understanding of lactobacillus bifidus is it wasn't used as a probiotic originally because it was the best like thing or the most well-researched uh, organism to get inside you. It was, it was the most easily able to grow and put inside of a pill, a pill that you could swallow that would survive its way down to your intestines in order to try to colonize to some extent. Going back once again, one of my favorite podcasts, This Week in Microbiology, they actually did a paper on probiotics. They covered the, well, they didn't do, write the paper, they covered the paper. And this is a paper on probiotics, not just so much on their efficacy in, you know, bringing and restoring your gut flora, but on, and, and you'll recognize this from other skeptic things, from especially like health supplements, is what they're saying is in there, is it actually in the probiotic? Yeah, yeah. good question. And, you will not be surprised, and most listeners will not be surprised to know, no, most of the time, it actually wasn't. Right. It was a lot of filler, or if it was there, mm-hmm. the organism had died or wasn't recoverable in culture. So you're taking these for no reason at some time. Like, even if they would work, <laughs> the thing you're putting in your mouth isn't doing anything. My, under- my best understanding, once again, don't take health advice from a podcast, unless it's like <laughs> an actual doctor podcast, and even then... Especially one about monsters. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Everything um, I need to know about what to eat, I learned on Monster Talk. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's why I drink McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) So there is some, once again, I'm pulling from the paper. This is not my research whatsoever. Sure, Uh, sure. But there is some evidence that perhaps if you are on an extremely broad spectrum antibiotic, that there might be some benefit, benefit to taking a probiotic to help perhaps reestablish gut flora. But right. that evidence is very weak. It is not, mm-hmm. it's not a scientific consensus by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. One of the only tried and true methods for giving you back normal flora that will actually work is a fecal transplant. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> and usually actually the best from somebody within your household. Yeah. For yourself is I think the best. But then somebody that you live with because you usually have the same diet. Yeah. yeah you're my, the microbiome that you have is probably very similar to what your partner has, your kids have, you know, other humans that are in your household. You probably have a very similar microbiome because even if you do what you're supposed to and you wash your hands after you use the restroom, you're not washing all the bugs off. When you flush the toilet, you are aerosolizing fecal material that's getting on your toothbrush. Um, there is nothing you can do to not outside of like living in bubbles and or having don't no brush your teeth. I think that's what I learned on monster talk this week. What? <laughs> yeah, But there is some Good evidence lesson. showing that there are plaques that like your g- gingivitis. Yeah. The gingiva bacteria. I forgot the entire, it's P gingiva something or other, but the same bacteria that produces can help produce plaque in your teeth. If it gets into your bloodstream, potentially is contributing to plaque inside your brain, which can contribute to Alzheimer's. Mm. Once again, that's research is, very is you know we only have a couple papers talking about that but so i should you know, floss I'm my brain from dr vincent mac and yellow so i'm actually pulling it from real scientists yeah but yeah it's like brush your teeth mm-hmm. but yeah you're gonna have a shared microbiome See the dentist really nothing you can do about it 
you yeah. know, the nice thing about fecal transplants last last little bit is that and, and who, the nice thing, yeah. the, the, yeah, nice the nice thing, thing is, what of the nice things is what you mean to say? No, yes, <laughs> <laughs> well, you it honestly at this point they have put it in, made it so that it is, and this is going to sound gross at first, but it's in pill form. Like it's an, it's you know, a that does, it turns out, sound gross. <laughs> yes. But double capsule. Yeah, it's like a, it's double capsulated. It's no, no different than swallowing a NyQuil. It doesn't smell like poo. It doesn't taste like poo. It doesn't, you know, make your breath smell like poo unless you're not brushing your teeth, which we already covered. But, you know, you can, you can do that. And it's, I don't know that it's a, as effective. If, um, the way they used to do it was the same as if they did like a regular, like colon check. Yeah, yeah. Or like a regular colonoscopy is how is is how they and I'm sure that you can still do it that way as well. I don't know which way is better. It gives you better results. It's probably once again don't take medical advice. Have, but I, the donors <laughs> are actually very carefully selected because in addition to wanting to give you a normal flora, they don't want to give you something that the other person had that was a carrier of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Cool. I've heard about that being used uh, and probiotics too for people who are um, you know, on the spectrum as well. Yeah, and that is. I'm going to jump right in. That is really wooey, very, very woo science. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unfortunately, I, I wish it would agree. I remember sharing very naively when I was just getting into skepticism. I shared that with one of my uh, lab supervisors whose son was autistic mm-hmm. and I shared her the article. It was in Discover. I mean, it's in Discover. So it's got to be real, right? Mm. Right. And she was very gentle with me. Oh, thankfully. that's nice. <laughs> you know, but, and yet, yeah, unfortunately, Maybe it's true. Maybe we will find some evidence to some point because I, you know, science is amazing. Biology mm-hmm. is amazing. But at this point, that's definitely in the realm of woo. You actually mentioned earlier that like uh, household cleaners that will kill like 99.9% of bacteria on contact. Should I be worried about the other 0.1%? <laughs> Why is that 0.1% so hard to kill? I, I I would like to see the actual studies that aren't done by the companies themselves. That hey, wait a minute, are you saying maybe that labels- advertising? <laughs> yeah, and then usually they're referring to they'll they'll have a specific organism that they're using as a benchmark. So they're yeah. saying kills ninety nine point nine percent of like this, and usually it'll be a lot of coliforms, which are most of the bacteria that we're able to culture that live in your gut, or the flu virus. You know, can can we recover it? But I would really like to see those studies replicated. We even have like professional kits that come into our lab that we don't use anymore that would say, oh, our kit is 90% effective at diagnosing this. And then we do our own study and we're like, we're getting like 60%. <laughs> we're not using <laughs> your kit anymore. I'm, a, I'm more than a little skeptical of in-house studies where they're testing the efficacy of their own product. Yeah, and most mm-hmm. of the time that is under the most optimum of conditions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they'll, they'll say, you know what, the surface has to remain wet for five minutes. In very fine oh, prints. Okay. Are you spraying your Lysol on mm-hmm. and it on there for five minutes? Oh, yeah. And most <laughs> of the time, it's actually 15 minutes for contact time for, for a lot of uh, things to kill, like, really nasty bugs. Yeah, we a lot of our tuberculosis reagents, and these are reagents that are designed to kill TB in the lab. We'll say, you know, it has, it has to dry for, like, 10, 15 minutes, which means that surface has to remain moist for mm-hmm. 10 to 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like, you know... If you quickly rinse your hands in the bathroom versus really, really, really washing them, you know, that it's the, by the way, I don't know. Is anybody besides me sick of the happy birthday song at this point? That's I do Beyonce single ladies. (laughs) There you go. My son counts to 10. Well, he's he's supposed to count to 10 seconds, but he's just counts very, very quickly. So. This oh, is also, 20 seconds is also Dune. Like the mind is the fear is the mind killer. If you yeah, go through yeah. that, hole, that's also 20 seconds. Yeah. The, the, uh, we actually, my wife 
got a shark soap dispenser that plays the Jaws theme. Oh, that's great. So it like basically it just keeps playing the Jaws theme until you're supposed to finish washing your hands. So uh, we also now can all tell when someone's not washing their hands because we're all like listening expectantly for the Jaws theme. <laughs> well, one of the key differences too between contact time to killing organisms and say washing your hands is that when you're washing your hands, you, what you're doing is that's a mechanical action of just trying to take the dirt and the things that the bacteria are living on off of your skin. Whereas like cleaners are, it's a chemical reaction that where they're trying to break down and keep that. Yeah. Like organism is actually still on your counter until you wipe, wipe it off. It's just dead and unable to replicate. Whereas when you wash your hands, you're like basically scrubbing that off. And that's why you say 20 seconds because that's giving that the soap time to form those little micelles or micelles where they make little soap bubble around the organism and then it floats away with water. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, so the soap is not breaking down the DNA? No. Oh, I mean, it's too bad. Let me, I would say there's probably like some soaps have antibiotic. Yeah. So what is, yeah, what's the difference? Yeah. I would like to see the efficacy once again on how well it kills it versus how well it just creates antibiotic resistance bacteria. Yeah. I'd like to see <laughs> that in like real world. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about bleach? Bleach does break down the DNA though, right? That's what it, doesn't yeah, it bleach destroys DNA. Yeah. Now, here's fun fact. If you want to do, like really disinfect, you do not want to use 100% bleach. No. You want to use a 9% hypochlorite solution, which means you want to look at your bleach bottle and see what the percentage of hypochlorite is on your said bleach bottle. For regular bleach, that's 6%. For the concentrated bleaches that are sold frequently now, that's more like 8.8 to 9%. And then you want to make a 10% dilution of to get a 10% sodium hypochlorite solution. Because that is what the sodium hypochlorite items, ions, are what are actually going to break down. And it's actually an acid at that point. The ions are forming an acid. Even though bleach is a base, um, it's those ions that are destroying the, uh, the bacterial. Well, I want to destroy them, but I don't want to do math. This is so hard. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> thank, thankfully, Clorox's website will tell you exactly how to do it. No, we actually – it's They I, will sell you this. They will sell it to you pre-diluted. I have a – bottle at home we've pre-measured for how much water to how much bleach to make that ratio yeah yeah exactly so we did the math but yeah that is that is really good advice and unfortunately there was a church in florida that has once again got shut down and sued because they're selling bleach bleach water as a cure for diseases and it's yeah it's one of those i I think this would this i just actually learned about i think i heard on one of the more recent skeptics guide the universe's podcast but yikes or it might have been on the Scathing Atheist. I don't remember now. Those guys are, you know, Noah's down by you, I think. Right? You read it on the internet. That's the important thing. That's what... <laughs> I read it on the internet. And well, then I went back and read down. it in the Washington Post. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, oh. don't, don't drink bleach. That's not good for you. No, ever. no, no. I, the, the, the lesson I saw was a guy who drank bleach to commit suicide. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he didn't die, but it mm-hmm. destroyed his digestive system. So yep. now he has to like manually move his food down his chest. So it's like, and he constructed an esophagus. Anyway, the point being, don't drink bleach. Don't drink bleach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I once, yeah, I, I've seen somebody drink windshield washer fluid and die in that way. Yeah, so that, that's chemistry. That's not microbiology. That's chemistry. That's no good. Yeah, you want your blood pH to be between 7.35 and 7.45. If you go too far above or below that, you die. Yikes. Oh, oh, oh. That's for another episode, I think. It is. Uh, What about, uh, okay, we really do need to wind up, but what about uh, yeast in your blood? 
like is it like I, is that a like are you trying to die no no i mean but i, I <laughs> yeah, yeah. trying to get a rise out of people <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> i'm leavening that joke behind that, are dude, you is, that's like a real person. medical condition people get right yeah and they die from it okay so like is yeah. it, it, it is it is there an amount that's a lot like what what is it any i mean you eat yeast and then you're fine but like what happens if it gets into your bloodstream i'm a little unclear like how that's separated exactly there's like some barrier like well, that's keep... called sepsis yeah yeah this so your blood doesn't you doesn't actually so when you eat that goes through your alimentary canal right my dear watson mm-hmm. yes <laughs> <laughs> so your bloodstream will come by near your alimentary canal and there'll be an exchange of you know nutrients and yes. whatnot but there will not be an exchange of organisms because organisms like yeast are too big to get inside ah. ideally Sometimes there will be some organism transfer, and that's why you actually have a lot of lymph nodes and a lot of like in, your immune system is very concentrated inside your your intestines because there's a lot of chance for the blood blood barrier to be broken. So if the it's like your yeast, firewall, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if the yeast or E. coli or any other microorganism get inside your bloodstream, they will start to reproduce, and they will start some of sometimes the, there's different ways that it's going to hurt you. Sometimes they float around and they get to other parts and they start building colonies there, which interfere with your biochemistry. Sometimes it's the byproducts of their metabolism that are going to interfere with your biochemistry. Sometimes it's the cells themselves that are toxic that will interfere with the biochemistry. And the other problem with yeast is it's going to depend on what kind of yeast, because as you may guess, there are a lots of different kinds of, if it's, say candida glabrata, candida galvacans. Um, there is a lot of different kinds of yeast. Yes. Yes. Saccharomyces, was it Saccharomyces cerevisiae? Cerevisiae, yeah. Yeah, the one that is, that makes beer taste yummy. Yeah. And there are fortunate few people that are colonized with it in their gut, and they are known as autofermenters. They can actually, I think, if they eat enough rainy foods, they can get drunk. They get drunk because they're fermenting wow. inside their own body. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but the yeast themselves aren't entering the bloodstream. The yeast are staying within the colon or within the small wow. intestine. So there's so much more that we could talk about, and we have so many questions that we haven't even asked yet. So uh, we'll probably have to talk again, I think, at, at some point in the future. Um, but I think we should kind of uh, wind up. Uh, no, we do have to wind up. I have to go pick up my son. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, we had a few versions of this question in here, but I think we'll just go with our, our classic one. So we'd like to pose to both of you, Maddie and Kurt, what's your favorite monster? My favorite monster is still the Loch Ness Monster. And I don't know if it's because, like, I grew up, I when I grew up, there was a lot of, uh, I believed in a lot of woo, <laughs> a lot of woo. There was an author at the time whose name is Charles Burlitz. I don't know how famous he was anywhere else, but in my local library, he was very famous. And oh, he no, was basically, he was, yeah, he's the Bermuda Triangle guy. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. I read all of his books and I took them for face value and everything in them. There was the gospel. But yeah, so the Loch Ness Monster, I just grew up with it. I love that whole idea. Nessie's a cute, lovable. There's that outer realm possibility that there might be something in Loch Ness, even though I also know that that's pretty much impossible. But I still like to entertain the thought like mm-hmm. that there's this prehistoric creature living in a lake that's only been around for 10,000 years. My knowledge of geology doesn't help my belief in the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Loch Ness Monster for me. I, I just, that's my cool. favorite. Very nice. And cut. I would say mine has probably been zombies for a long time. Don't know why. Um, I do enjoy that they can coincide with my nerdy love of like 
being prepared for emergencies. Sure. Uh, like the CDC, <laughs> they had that whole coordination of like a zombie attack or a zombie yes. apocalypse. And it's how you can be prepared for an emergency, even uh, with yeah. your family. But that, that raises an important final question for your question. <laughs> Which, <laughs> fast zombies or slow zombies? Oh, are we talking about my survival? Yeah. Do, which do you prefer? Okay. If you want to watch a movie or if you want to live. Yeah. So yeah, two different things, I guess. Yeah. What, yeah. If I want to survive, it's slow zombies. Okay. But in All the right. movies, do just, you have a preference? Like, If it's going to be just a horrible time, let's just do fast zombies and I'll just go. <laughs> I'm out of <laughs> But yeah. Well, that's excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for making the time to talk to us tonight. Yeah, this was fascinating. Really interesting. So much to discuss. Yeah, I like this too. There's lots of good science and and gross stuff, and that's what we love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> microbiologists lots are always gross stuff. stuff. <laughs> well, um, uh, this will be probably a few. I'm trying to do them every weeks. two weeks if I can. So this might be like in it might be as long as six weeks, something like that. But we'll oh, get it okay, out, okay. and I'll let that's you know good. what the release date is going to be. So sometimes yeah. between now and September. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well we, said. We, yeah, we'll keep in touch. We'll let you know when it's going to come out. I mean, my last personal podcast episode came out in 2019. So let me let me lecture you on a release. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, the good, it's good because we've got some in the can. So, I mean, it's like, you know, we're trying to get ahead and, and try to – I want to be more regular. So Yeah, yeah we've so been doing some different things in there too. that I hope you did on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to it's be more regular, says Guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to say, Blake, and I, I told Karen this when I had her on Atheist Talk. Uh, when you were on Atheist Talk, I was highly disappointed. The entire time, you didn't pun once. Yeah, you know what? It, that, it's there is behavior. Well, it, I, it is a mode of thinking. Like if I'm um, like when I'm really focused on like specific like it the more i know about a topic i'll be honest the more i know about a topic the more i'm likely to be silly like uh, yeah. you know and sure. but when i'm being interviewed i especially on radio i was like I, I was just a little nervous about being live you know uh so i think maybe that's yeah. part of it but uh every, every now and then we'll get into like a serious discussion and i'll go start editing an episode i'm like oh my god i didn't do any puns what the hell you know so <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the exception. Uh, it's the exception. It's my favorite part of Monster Talk, to be honest. Like, I love this your show in general. I love both of you. But I love puns so much. And I love how well and how fast and how on on point they are. So just thank you for that. Oh, for he, he, he is uh, extremely talented at that. But I think we're kind of 50-50, aren't we, split with people who roll their eyes and people who love them. Hey, that's my wife. She's well. She kind of like she kind of hates them, and then sometimes she laughs, and that's what I stick around for. So. Yep, yep, yep. I was told I needed to stop talking once on a car trip. My wife looked and she goes, "Please stop talking. Just please stop." <laughs> oh. I've had my family boo. <laughs> Just family? Yeah, yeah. Well, no. I mean, I've obviously had other people boo, but you know, when, yes. when, 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 no, no, uh, no, Dad, no, bad. Oh. <laughs> All right. You, well, thank you thank so much. Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you, Maddie. And Kurt, you did a really great job. If this was your first interview, I yeah. couldn't tell. Oh, yeah, definitely was. And uh, thank you for making it easy. Yeah, yeah. So oh. thank you, Maddie, for making this very easy. For nah. so we always Maddie's great. Be gentle Shoot. the first time. So we'll get the rough <laughs> yeah. stuff in later. All right. <laughs> Thanks Good. again. Good night. <laughs> bye bye. Good night. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. 
You just heard an interview with microbiology lab experts Maddie Love and Kurt Jude discussing bacteria. I've put links in the show notes to more information on bacteria and to Maddie's podcasts. We are surrounded by bacteria. We're full of bacteria. And as the ecology of the earth changes, we're going to have to learn how to respond to new threats to our health and perhaps even to old ones. In 2016, a massive die-off of reindeer in Siberia was linked to anthrax and tied to the thawing of the permafrost. Ancient frozen bacteria over 30,000 years in ice has been seen to reanimate in labs. Will the reintroduction of such pathogens lead to new diseases? Ancient ones? Novel treatments? Our deeper insights into our history? The old is coming back, the present's ever-changing, and the future's unpredictable. But science remains our best route to being prepared for what comes next. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Coming up soon, some old school Bigfoot stuff, Lovecraftian gaming, and more. Stay tuned and share with your friends. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for making our show a part of your listening habits. Monster House presentation. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.